Loving Heavenly Father, this morning we have already sung about your cross and your grave. Things of weakness that have become our victory cry. And so, Lord Jesus, as we come to your word now, we pray that you would speak to us whether we have come into this room strong or weak. And we pray that your spirit would minister to us by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please take your seats. Is your name David? That's so good to meet you. I've, I've heard so much about you. You're, you're the helpless, desperate, weak one, right? Upton steps onto the field to make his Premier League debut for Arsenal. In an interview before the game, his manager described the player as helpless, desperate and weak. We're gathered here today to remember and celebrate the life of David Upton, a man who we will always remember as helpless, desperate and weak. Helpless, desperate, weak. These are words that I imagine any of us would not want to be associated with in any of these situations or in just about any other for that matter. We live in a society where we're, if we're asked in a job interview, what's your greatest weakness? We like to reframe the question to talk about our strength. Uh, I just work too hard. Sometimes I just, I just care too much rather than actually admitting where we're weak. We live in a culture where desperation is despised, independence is prized, where asking for help is always encouraged until you actually need to ask, and then you're just seen as having made yourself a bit of a burden. Helpless, desperate, weak. If you want to win friends and influence people, if you want to get ahead in life or make a name for yourself, these are not the words you want to be associated with. And yet as we dwell on Psalm 116 this morning, my prayer is that we will see that these are the very words that we must be associated with if we want a place in the Lord's kingdom. And these are the words that we must continue to embody and live out in the Christian life if we want to be of any use to the Lord in making his name known to others. As the Lord said to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Helpless, desperate, weak. Whether these words resonate uncomfortably close to home this morning, or if you hear them and think that this sermon has nothing to do with you, I want us to see that being helpless, desperate, and weak is both a deeply humbling and an incredibly liberating gospel truth for us to dwell on. It's deeply humbling because if you feel like you have done God a favour by turning up this morning, or by serving him this past week. If you've come to church this morning feeling strong, 
independent, or, or even proud, then our psalm will show us that our view of the situation is, is totally upside down. But this is also an incredibly liberating truth. Because if you have walked through our church doors this morning feeling utterly helpless, desperate, or weak, if you have woken up this morning and all you are conscious of is weakness, whether that's your health or capacity, your doubts or your distractions, your future prospects or the effects of some past failure, or a weakness that only the Lord knows, then not only does he see that weakness, but he is in the business of turning weakness into strength, of rescuing the weak so that through the weak he might make known the strong name of Jesus in every corner of the earth. Three points this morning. Point one, the Lord hears the helpless. Just this week, I was speaking to one of our ministers who from time to time, it has been known, he struggles with his hearing. To protect his identity, I won't say who it was, but he's not on sabbatical and it wasn't Rue. Uh, But he was telling me, he was telling me how at his last hearing test, he may have cheated. Uh, He was meant to close his eyes and click a button every time he heard something. But instead, he kept peeking. Uh, Decided to try his luck by clicking his button every time he saw the hearing attendant click their computer to play the next sound. And somehow he left the building, having been told he has truly excellent hearing. (laughs) Psalm 116 begins abruptly, personally, and joyfully. The psalmist opens by declaring, I love the Lord. Why? Because the Lord hears. In Hebrew poetry, if you want to emphasize a point, you repeat it. And three times in verses 1 and 2, our psalmist explains that he loves the Lord because the Lord heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy because he turned his ear to me. Uh, The picture is that the Lord could have been looking in entirely the opposite direction with his eyes firmly shut, and yet he would still hear the psalmist's voice and turn his ear towards him. The Lord hears. He listens to all who call on him. And verse 3 and 4 show us what the psalmist called on the Lord about. Look with me. The cords of death entangled me the anguish of the grave came over me I was overcome by distress and sorrow then I called on the name of the Lord Lord save me we're not exactly sure who our psalmist is or what it is exactly that they needed saving from but it is clearly serious life-threatening even They're unable to break the cords of death that entangle them. They're unable to throw off the anguish of the grave that looms over them. They see their situation and they are paralyzed by distress and sorrow. The psalmist recognizes how utterly helpless they are to do anything about their situation. And so what do they do? They call on the name of the Lord, Lord, save me. 
because they know that no matter how helpless their situation might be or or how helpless they might feel, the Lord hears. I wonder, can you, like the psalmist, say with joy this morning, I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. Or if you come to church this morning wondering if the Lord needs a hearing test. Maybe despite sitting in a room full of people, you're feeling particularly lonely this morning. Perhaps you feel like all of your prayers are going straight to the Lord's spam folder. Or maybe you feel like no one understands. I'm just a burden that no one really wants to listen to. If any of that resonates with you, then let this psalm bring you comfort that the Lord always hears. Even if you feel like the Lord is distant this morning, that your words are falling on deaf ears, then take comfort that because the Father always hears the voice of his precious Son, the Lord Jesus, then if you are trusting in Christ this morning, then you can know with great confidence that the Lord's ear is always turned towards you. Uh, that the risen and ascended Lord Jesus is interceding for you at the right hand of the Father right now. And that no matter what distress or sorrow you face this morning or in the week to come, he says with all sincerity, let me hear your voice. But what use is it that the Lord hears? You may well be thinking. Did he hear the helpless cries of the migrant ship? Or the millionaire's sub. If he did, he clearly didn't do anything about it. So what what use is it to call on this Lord when I'm helpless if all he does is hear? I don't just want a God who hears when I'm helpless. I, I want a God who hears and who acts on what he hears. Well, that leads us to our second point. Point two, the Lord delivers the desperate. In a total of 19 verses, Psalm 116 uses God's personal name, the Lord, 18 times. Having just told us some of what the Lord is like in verses 1 to 4, that he hears and he listens, uh, the psalmist now moves on to tell us more about what he knows about the Lord's character, uh, both from his own personal experience and from what the Lord had revealed of his own character uh, back in Exodus chapter 34. Uh, look down with me at verses 5 to 7 of our psalm. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the unwary. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. It was great to hear from our mission partners, uh, Rachel and Sherd, just earlier. Uh, And you may remember that when another of our mission partners, Dan and Ruth Bullock, were last in Nottingham, uh, they had a giant shipping container placed in our car park to be filled up with ministry resources uh, and supplies for disability ministry out in Zambia where they serve. Now, I was part of the team that helped uh, to pack that shipping container. Dan and Ruth organized truckloads of equipment to be dropped off, and we'd unload the vans and then pack their contents tightly in the shipping container to the point 
where it was full. Then the next day, more vans with more equipment arrived, and we had to unpack and repack the shipping container. And I remember just seeing the sheer quantity of stuff that had arrived the next day and saying to Dan, there is no way that's fitting. We struggled to fit in what we already had. Surely we're not squeezing in any more. That container is full. To which he replied in what I think was a half-joking, half-rebuking tone, where he said, ye of little faith. And lo and behold, somehow, with great missionary guile and a bit of prayer, all the equipment fit in that container before making the long journey out to Zambia in just about one piece. The psalmist says of the Lord in verse 5 that he is gracious and righteous, that our God is full of compassion. And I have no idea how you view God this morning. But I suspect that for many of us in this room, we may doubt or have gone through periods of doubt of wondering whether the Lord is really full of compassion. Maybe you've experienced for yourself the Lord's compassion, but you wonder, could he not, could he not show a bit more compassion? Is he holding out, holding back? Uh, maybe as you look at the suffering in this world or at so many people who have not put their trust in Jesus, maybe you can't help but wonder, couldn't he squeeze in a bit more compassion like the Bullock's magic shipping container? To which our psalmist would reply, there is no more room know that the Lord could not be more compassionate. He he is as full of compassion as he possibly could be. He is loving and just. He is gracious and righteous. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Yet he will not leave the guilty unpunished because to do so would not be the act of a compassionate God either. This is the character of the Lord who the psalmist calls upon. He can call upon him because he knows, that his, he knows that his Lord hears, that he is gracious, righteous, full of compassion. And so verse 6, he knows that the Lord will protect the unwary. Unwary isn't a word that we tend to use all that much. I had to do a define unwary on Google. I don't know if you have to do that. Uh, but it simply means simple. Or foolish. Derek Kidner writes of this verse It is humble of the psalmist to identify with them. It is humble of God's to have time for them. In verse 7, the reason that the psalmist's soul can be at rest is because he knows that he doesn't need to be strong or powerful to call upon the Lord, he doesn't need to have some track record of great wisdom or good work. He knows that no matter how low he finds himself, he can humbly call upon the Lord to save him, even in spite of his own foolishness. Because his is a God so full of compassion that he will protect the unwary, those that bring nothing to the table except their own baggage and foolishness. Isn't that liberating? Because it means that the Lord's compassionate heart towards you this morning, it has not changed based on your moral performance this past week. If you are trusting in the Lord Jesus this morning, 
than any foolishness you have engaged in this past week, any sin that you have struggled to fight. It has been washed away by the torrential downpour of the Lord's compassion to you. A compassion that led God the Father to send his one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross so that whoever believes in him shall not perish because of any foolishness or sin of their own, but instead that they might have eternal life. The psalmist continues in verse 7 to 9. Return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For you, Lord, have delivered me from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. If you look ahead at verse 10 and 11, then you can see that the psalmist had been afflicted and alarmed to the point where he felt like he couldn't trust any person. But in verse 7, we read that his soul could rest because he could still trust the Lord. He had called upon the Lord, and the Lord had delivered him from death. Charles Spurgeon beautifully writes of verse 8, The triune God has given us a trinity of deliverances. Our life has been spared from the grave. Our heart has been uplifted from its griefs. And our course in life has been preserved from dishonor. Our psalmist doesn't make it clear whether he's been delivered uh, by the Lord from a sickness that almost killed him or by the plot of some enemies to bring him down. To some extent, it doesn't matter. But what is important to know is that the Lord prolonged his life, delivering him from certain death. That is why the psalmist's soul can be at rest. But if you've been a Christian any length of time, then you'll know that the Lord has made no promises to immediately deliver us from every difficult situation in this life. In fact, Jesus tells us that suffering is to be expected as part of the Christian life. And we also know that having been delivered from whatever near-death situation this was, our psalmist would eventually have to face death in the end. The same was true of the widow's sons raised from the dead by Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament. The same was true of Lazarus and Jairus' daughter when Jesus raised them from the dead. Despite having been miraculously delivered from death by the Lord, they did go on to face death again in the future. But the incredible hope found in the gospel at the life-changing fulfillment that Jesus brings in the New Testament is that for all who put their trust in him, they can know the hope of Psalm 116, verse 8, truly and permanently. Jesus says this in John 11. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? The Lord delivered the psalmist from death so that he might walk before the Lord in the land of the living. And for all who put their trust in the Lord Jesus, we have the even greater hope of everlasting life, an everlasting walk before the Lord 
in a world made new. As Christians, we have no guarantee that we will not face death. But we do have the unshakable promise that just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so too the Lord will deliver us from death. That whoever lives by believing in Jesus will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in him will never die. It was the American missionary Lottie Moon who embodied this great confidence as she served the Lord out in China for almost 40 years when she said so confidently, I am immortal until my work on earth is done. What might it look like for you to live out those words this week? As you know that even death is not the end for you if you're in Christ. How might these verses help your soul to find rest this week, knowing, like the psalmist, that the Lord has been good to you in the Lord Jesus? Perhaps it means going into this week with a renewed confidence or hope. Or maybe it is a comfort that even your darkest days you can face with a bright light at the end of the tunnel, no matter how dim it might appear at present. Verse 1 to 9 of our psalm has recalled the Lord's rescue of our psalmist, how he heard his cry for help and delivered him even from death. Uh, And now more briefly, in the second half of our psalm, we'll see the psalmist's response to all the Lord has done for him. Point three, our final point. The Lord works through the weak. I remember my grandparents bringing me a gift after they got back from their holiday. They'd often get me and my little sister a little souvenir from their travels. And this time they brought back one of those big, giant pencils. Now, being a young child at the time, I didn't realize this is actually quite an impractical gift. I don't know if you've ever tried writing with a giant pencil, but it doesn't do your handwriting any favors. But I was thrilled with this pencil. It was giant. It was from a country that I'd never been to. And my grandparents had brought it back specially for me. Now, I want you to imagine that how they might have felt if at that moment I'd whipped out my piggy bank and I'd said, come on then. How much do I owe you for the giant pencil? Was it a giant price? What's the best price you could do for me on the exchange rates? Do I need to pay any extra for delivery or is that that included? I'm actually a little short on pocket money at the moment. So can we work out some sort of finance agreement so that I can repay you over 12 months, let's say? The right response to their gift would not have been to try and reluctantly repay them. Instead, it would be to enjoy the gift that they had given me. Uh, To thank them, throw my arms around them, and then run around the room shouting, everybody, come and look. My grandparents have got me a giant pencil. I think that's the joyful posture that we're supposed to approach verse 12 to 19 with. In these verses, the psalmist speaks of all sorts of things that he's going to do for the Lord as a result of the Lord's goodness to him. But as we read these verses, I hope we'll see that the tone of the psalmist isn't of someone trying to reluctantly repay his God. Well, I guess you got me out of that hard situation, Lord, so suppose I'm in your debt. No, it is instead of someone who is joyfully enjoying the new life their Lord has given them. Of someone who is running around shouting about their weakness. 
Because in doing so, it means that they have an opportunity to speak of their Lord's strength. Look down with me at verse 12 to 19. What shall I return to the Lord for all his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. Truly, I am your servant, Lord. I serve you just as my mother did. You have freed me from my chains. I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. I notice the deliberate sandwich structure to this section. Verse 13 and 14, and then verse 17 and 19, both speak of the various sacrifices and vows that the psalmist is going to offer, uh, of continuing to call on the name of the Lord. Uh, and then right in the middle, in verse 15 to 16, the psalmist speaks of serving the Lord until his death. And I wonder what questions those looking on might have asked of our psalmist. Why are you offering these sacrifices and fulfilling these vows? Why do you continue to call on the name of the Lord now that he saved you from that desperate situation? Why on earth would you use your newfound freedom to bind yourself again in service to your God? Tell us, what what is it that your Lord has done for you that is making you do all of these things? To which our psalmist might respond, I'm offering these sacrifices because I love the Lord. He heard my voice when I was helpless. I'm fulfilling my vows because I love the Lord. When I was desperate, he delivered me. I want to continue calling on the name of the Lord, no longer out of desperation, but now out of gratitude. I want to serve the Lord because he is the kindest, most gracious master I could ever serve. And if I, if I don't serve him, I'll just end up serving a lesser harsher master instead the psalmist offers his sacrifices fulfills his vows full of joy and it gives him the opportunity to speak of his lord's strength of the lord's perfect power to save him even when he was helpless desperate and weak We began our time by thinking about those three words uh, and the need for us to be associated with them if we want to gain entry into God's kingdom and of the need to embody them if we are to be of any use in the Lord's kingdom. Uh, And I hope as we've looked at verse 12 to 19, we can see that that is something that can be done joyfully. But if you're anything like me, then then yes, when it comes to salvation, I, I can see my utter weakness. I know there's no chance that I could deliver myself from death. I know that I am utterly helpless to save myself when it comes to my sin. And I know that it is only because of Christ that I have any hope of being counted as one of the Lord's people. But surely now that he has saved us, and now that I have been freed from my chains so that I might serve him, why on earth would he want us to continue being a weak church? Surely spiritual growth looks like becoming less dependent on God rather than increasingly needy. I mean, very practically, how are we supposed to reach a world that needs to know the gospel with weakness? 
And I think our answer, at least in part, comes from that verse we began with. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Then the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The Lord did not need the Apostle Paul to be strong in order to use him. In fact, if you know the context of these verses, we know the Lord sent Paul a thorn in the flesh because he wanted him to be weaker and more dependent on the Lord. And the scandalous thing is that the Lord didn't need Christ's strength at the cross. Instead, he needed him to lay down his strength and be weak so that through his death, he might powerfully rescue weak people like you and I. And so if the Lord worked through the weakness of Christ, of Paul, and of countless others, he doesn't need you to be strong in order to use you. He doesn't need Cornerstone Church to be strong in order to do great things in this city or in this world. Instead, he wants us to be a church that is dependent on him, that recognizes we are weak, made strong in the Savior's love, who, just like our psalmist, point people away from ourselves to the strong, mighty name of the Lord Jesus, the only name with power to save. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a God who delights to work through weak people. Lord, you don't need us to make your strong name known in this world. And yet you want to use us so that we might make you known to the corners of this earth. Father, we confess in so many areas of our lives we are weak. And there are probably more areas in our lives where we think we're strong and we're weak. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you might be strong in our weakness. That you might help us to serve you in weakness this week. Knowing that because of Christ's strength, Christ's power, we are the weak made strong in the Saviour's love. Pray these things in his precious name. Amen.